John chapter 2, beginning at first verse. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for holding ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water so they are filled so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where he, it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? He answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. But it would also be good to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage. But why don't I pray that we can now focus on what God wants to speak to us today. 
Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that we can gather. We thank you for your word uh, and that you speak through it. Uh, Lord, as we think about miracles today, uh, we pray we might see where those miracles point. We might recognize the glory of your son. So Lord, uh, through your spirit today, help each of us to hear the things that we need to hear. Amen. Every day uh, we read and interpret signs. Uh, And by definition, a sign points to something more significant than itself. And so I thought what I'd do is is just to get us started, I'm going to put up a few signs and you tell me what they mean, okay? So we'll start easy and maybe the kids want to shout out if they want to, that's totally fine. Okay, but let's see how we go. We'll start easy. What's the point of the sign? We've got kangaroos, we've got them in 20 Ks and, and please don't run over them. Yeah. Okay, number two. Change of the seasons. Yep, we see the, the colour of the leaves change. We can see that we're, we're leaving summer and all that happiness and we're going to winter and uh, off we go. Next one. Oh, isn't that beautiful? So, yeah, can't say anything. You don't know and it's not worth risking it. Excellent advice. <laughs> so, uh, but in your mind, without saying it out loud, because fraught, uh, we're going, we're, we're pretty sure a child is on the way. So, but thank you. Excellent warning, particularly for the blokes. Okay, next one. This should come, <laughs> this should come with a trigger warning. Uh, okay, but what's the sign? Yeah, it's dangerous, but it's also about to attack, isn't it? He's not in his little happy, you know, cosy place. Uh, that's, for some, that's just you know, giving you the heebie-jeebies. And then last one. That's the rip. Yeah, easier to see in this picture, not always easy to see when you're down at the beach. But we look at that and we go, you can see that there is something there, that there is danger. Uh, in our passage today, you know, we're reading about all sorts of miracles that Jesus uh, does or will do. Uh, but they're never about the miracle themselves. Uh, important things happen as a result of those miracles. Uh, and as we'll see, salvation happens as a result of one of those miracles. But they also point to the glory of Jesus and, and who he is as the Son of God. So our account today begins uh, with the Jesus and his disciples at a, a wedding. And who doesn't love a good wedding? You know, it all starts with a, a bit of a ceremony. In fact, in Jewish weddings, there was a procession the night before as all these lanterns sort of wind down, you know, the dark country roads. And then there would have been a ceremony and then literally days of celebrating. Uh, so singing, dancing, food and wine and all those good things that capture the, the joy of marriage in the moment. Uh, but if you've been involved in a wedding, then you'll know that behind all sort of the smiles and the happiness, uh, there's actually an awful lot of pressure. You know, the, the phrase, you know, um, again, risky, a bit like pregnancy, uh, the phrase, you know, bridezilla doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Okay, it's a combination of expectation and fear all coming together because you want this moment to be perfect. And for many cultures, and certainly in a Jewish culture, uh, a wedding is also a matter of family honour. And so it's important that the guests are looked after well, that you lavish them uh, with you know, every good thing that you can muster. So when the wine runs out at this wedding, then it is a genuine social crisis. 
And so for some reason, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus with the expectation that he's going to do something about it. Okay, so what happens? So Jesus escalates this moment uh, from a personal social crisis to a revealing the glory of God moment. So verse 4, woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. I think pretty much every word in that verse needs a comment. Uh, Firstly, if we addressed someone as woman, uh, particularly if we addressed our mother as woman, uh, that would not be well appreciated. It does come across as somewhat patronising and disrespectful. Uh, But certainly that isn't what is meant in this context or by the the word in the original context. And, And Jesus uses the same word, when he addresses his mother on the cross. Uh, So it's not as personal as the word mother, but it still carries the idea of respect and affection. And his choice of words really highlights the capacity in which he is speaking. So he's not speaking to Mary as her son, he is speaking to Mary as God's chosen one, uh, the Messiah who has come to bring light and to take away the sin of the world. And as the Messiah, uh, he really has no social responsibility in this situation when it comes to the wine. Uh, This is not the reason uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the next thing I think that we we jump to in this verse is this phrase, my hour has not yet come. And it's a recurring phrase all the way through the book of John and it's always in reference to his arrest and death, and then resurrection. So, for example, John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So now is not the hour. Uh, But it certainly sets up an expectation that an hour is coming and when it comes, it's going to be big. Uh, But even so, this is still going to be a revealing the glory of God moment because he turns to his servants and he tells them to... He sees these six sort of massive ceremonial jars and he tells them to go and fill them to the brim with water. And then when they return... Uh, They take this water to the the master of the banquet and he is pleasantly surprised by what he discovers. And he goes off and he praises the groom because, verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And so the groom gets all the credit and the honour uh, for you know this this wonderful wine, and and he's avoided this moment of family shame and humiliation. Uh, but this compliment of the best to last works on a couple of levels. Uh, most obviously, the master of the banquet uh, is referring to the wine, uh, but for John, uh, he's referring to the wine, but he's also sort of making this uh, you know rather sort of discreet reference to Jesus. Out of everything that's happened in the past, all the way through the Old Testament, God has kept the best to last. And I think it's a legitimate connection because of how John introduces the book, this book. So he says, Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament law was good, but what Jesus brings is even better. So this miracle doesn't just protect the family honour, more significantly, it points to the glory of Jesus. And it's a confirmation of what's already been testified, what's been testified by the Apostle John and then last week by John the Baptist. And so we come to our second sign, uh, although this time it's not so much a sign in the present as something that they're looking forward to in the future. Uh, A few days after the wedding, uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover festival. And when he gets to the temple, he's genuinely angry at what he sees uh, because the temple looks more like a marketplace than a place of worship. I think one of the interesting things uh, for those who've read the various gospel accounts is where this account fits in John's Gospel. So for most of the accounts, for three out of four, uh, we read about this event at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, not at the beginning. And so I suppose it could be one of two explanations. Uh, The first could be uh, that John is less interested in the timing of events and more interested in the significance of events. Uh, And we saw that even last week. He's talking about baptism, but he doesn't really talk about the event of baptism much at all. He just talks about the significance. And so this could just be one way of how John weaves together the account to teach us something about the nature of God. Uh, The second option is simply that there are two accounts uh, and John is recording one account and the other Gospels are recording the other. And they're about roughly three years apart. Uh, And that's certainly possible. Uh, In each of the Gospel accounts, there are, you know, different priorities in terms of what the writer wants to talk about. And that's what we'd expect, isn't it? You know, if four of us uh, went out for the day uh, yesterday and and we went to the beach and had lunch and different things, if you then asked us to then talk about our day, I think you would get four similar but very different accounts. We'd all have sort of different things that stood out in our mind and different things that that we particularly enjoyed or valued. Uh, And that can happen in the Gospel accounts as well. Uh, Either which way, it it doesn't change the fact that this event did happen. And during Passover, uh, people come from as far away as even Africa uh, or Ethiopia and places like that. And so when they arrived, uh, they they don't sort of necessarily bring the animals with them. They'd get there and they would uh, purchase an animal or exchange money so that they could then give their tithe and get involved in the, in the temple sacrifices. So the problem here isn't that people are trading, you know, buying and selling animals or exchanging money. The problem in this situation is that they're doing it in the temple courts And perhaps it also reflects a bit of the attitude of the time, that it's no longer about, you know, reverent worship and it's more about plying a trade. And so Jesus sees all of this and he's angry and he creates absolute chaos. So he knocks over the tables, uh, money is scattered all over the place. You can imagine people, you know, in their robes, you know, crawling around on hands and knees trying to sort of grab their money. Uh, In the meantime... Uh, Jesus is, is uh, you know, pushing out all the sheep and the cattle, so they're clacking away on the flagstones and slipping and sliding. Uh, you know, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be quite comical, really, uh, to watch. Uh, but interestingly, out of all of this, okay, our temptation is to imagine that people look at Jesus as a madman, 
You know, who is this guy that, that comes in? Um, but for the people there and for the Jewish leaders, uh, they don't write him off as crazy or they don't arrest him. Uh, they actually come and ask him. So the Jews, Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So at the wedding, his glory is revealed in turning water into wine. But Jesus is looking forward to a time where his glory will be revealed in his suffering, death and then resurrection. And this figurative language of Jesus being the temple again sort of looks back to John's account right back at the beginning where he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And that phrase dwelling amongst us is literally tabernacled. Uh, So in the Old Testament, the tabernacle represented the presence of God. And now God is present in the flesh through his son. You know, by ourselves... You know, we are unclean. Uh, We are relationally separated from God. Uh, But God sends his son so that we can have our honour restored. And not just for a moment, but for a lifetime and for eternity. Uh, That the consequences of our sin can be paid for and that we can be reconciled. But of course, all of this is completely lost in the moment. You know, when Jesus talks about this temple being raised in three days, they completely miss the point. But looking back, the disciples see it. Uh, And of course, what's going to happen is, as Jesus rises again from the dead, and as he sends his spirit, the temple itself will become redundant. Uh, The spirit, the God's dwelling place is no longer in the temple. It is with his people. Uh, But even that present experience for us of having God's spirit is really just a foreshadowing and a taste and a very imperfect taste of our future uh, where God promises to reconcile us perfectly with himself, with God the Son, God the Father and God the Spirit, uh, where there'll be no separation between us and God. Uh, So again, in the words of John, but this time in the book of Revelation, This is what we look forward to. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now amongst the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And that hope, that future hope, makes a world of difference for our present. It makes a world of difference for how we live in the present, for what we value, for how we spend our time. Uh, for how we approach our mortality and death. And that hope drives out fear. So far in our account, we've accounted two signs. Uh, And now he concludes this section with a whole bunch of signs. Uh, But really, there's no detail given whatsoever. Uh, And that's because the detail is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter what he did. It matters how people responded to it and how people interpret the sign. So people see and they believe. Well, at least they kind of believe because uh, the translation gets a little bit lost in this section because the text is a play on words. So where it says uh, believed, uh, that's the same word for entrusted. So they believed him 
but he did not believe them. And he's, he's in a position to know, isn't he? You know, he doesn't need to listen to what they say on the outside or look at the outside appearance because he knows the heart. Uh, clearly, they're excited uh, by what Jesus has performed and I'm sure if they were, you know, sick, then they're very happy to be well. But it doesn't translate into a lasting, genuine faith. You know, sadly, uh, if we've been around Christian things for a while, uh, we would all have... Uh, friends, uh, family who we love, uh, who at one time or another would have professed to be Christians and would have had every good indicator to show that that uh, confession was sincere. Uh, It would have reflected in the way they spend their time coming to church, praying, reading their Bible, uh, all sorts of good things. But at some point in their life, something's changed. Uh, What we often described as falling away. Uh, And so the question for us is what happens in that situation? And I think partly another question that comes out of it is, well, they looked so sincere and they looked like they had a genuine faith and if they can fall away, then what does that say for me? Uh, If they can fall away, then perhaps I can fall away as well. How can I be confident that my faith is real? Uh, There are certainly passages in the Bible that at least on a... Uh, a basic reading would suggest that Christians can fall away. Uh, But overwhelmingly, uh, the message of the Bible, and those passages need to be read read in the context of the whole, and the overwhelming message is God is the one who chooses, God is the one who calls, God is the one who saves, and God is the one who will not let us go. And so, for example, again, drawing on John, This is what it says, and we'll preach on this later in the series. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So, if that's true, if a genuine Christian can't fall away, then what's going on? And I think the answer is for all of those good indicators, uh, for all of that perhaps even personal sincerity, that there wasn't a genuine faith underneath. Uh, There was something fundamentally missing for all of that enthusiasm, for all of that excitement, uh, and for all of that, you know, turning up to church on Sunday. Uh, So how can we be confident that our salvation is real uh, if theirs looked so good? And it's not so much a question of can can God hold on to me uh, or, you know, will God let me go? I think the, the bigger question is, is God holding on to me? How can I be confident that he is holding? And I think, uh, just to be helpful, I think here's five questions that that mostly I've drawn out of uh, the book of 1 John, but I think they're a little bit of a a helpful self-reflection that should either challenge us or give us confidence. So here we go. Uh, The first one is, do I acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour? If we haven't got that first step, then we're in real trouble. Uh, Secondly, am I committed to obeying his commands? in my thoughts, in what I say, and in my actions. Number three, do I see God's spirit moulding my character? Uh, Clearly, uh, we are not perfect, uh, but do we see progress? Uh, And it is frustrating. Sometimes our progress can look a little bit like a stock market graph. 
don't know if you've ever seen a stock market graph, but it, it sort of goes up for a bit and then it dips and then it goes up and then it dips and sometimes it dips a whole lot uh, and then it goes up. Uh, and, you know, those dips aren't great. Uh, they're not, that's not a good thing. But do we see that progress? Uh, do we see God refining our faith? Uh, and when it comes to those dips and those downs, do I repent when I sin? And then finally, and I think this is the one we often miss, am I persevering? And if we can say yes to those things today, then today we should have every assurance of our salvation. Yeah, we often feel it would be easier to have faith if we had an indisputable, see-with-my-eyes, miraculous experience. And I suspect that type of experience would make our faith stronger. Uh, But ultimately, our faith isn't built on our experience. Uh, Or for that matter, our ability to intellectually assent to the truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, Or even our passion for the Bible or for Jesus. And we certainly see that in this passage. Uh, Miracles function as signs pointing to the glory of Jesus. Uh, But in the end, uh, not everyone will read the signs. Uh, They like the sign. Uh, They might even praise God for the sign, hang the sign on their wall, uh, but not necessarily commit. And when it comes to us recognising the glory of God and being saved, then we need to recognise the signs and actually do something about it. Uh, And we have those signs already. We don't need more signs. We have God's signs already laid out for us in God's word. And so the more miraculous event isn't experiencing something miraculous. Uh, The more miraculous event is that God opens our eyes to see the signs and to actually believe that they are true and to do something about it. Uh, to genuinely commit to recognising the glory of God and Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. And as we recognise that, we believe, we repent and we follow. So let's pray that we might do that. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, as we reflect on your word today, uh, Lord, sometimes we feel that we would love you to be uh, more present, uh, more miraculous in our life. But Lord, You have given us everything we need in your word. You have shown us your son. You have shown us his glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you will work miraculously in us, uh, that by your spirit that we might see it, that we might know it, and that we might live it out. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercy today. Amen.